one of my favorite songs uh, when I was a young person, younger person, I keep getting told I'm young. I don't feel young as I approach 50, but people keep telling me I'm a kid, which is fine. It's like fountain of youth coming to church sometimes. But when I was a younger person, one of my favorite songs was based on the gospel reading this morning, based on the story of the prodigal son. It was a song entitled, When God Ran. Some of you may be familiar with it. It was by Phillips, Craig, and Dean. And I wanted to share a few of the lyrics. It says, Almighty God, the great I am, immovable rock, omnipotent, powerful, awesome Lord, victorious warrior, commanding king of kings, mighty conqueror, And the only time, the only time I ever saw him run was when he ran to me. He took me in his arms, held my head to his chest, said, my sons, come home again. Lifted my face, wiped the tears from my eyes. With forgiveness in his voice, he said, son, do you know I still love you? He caught me by surprise when God ran. The day I left home, I knew I'd broken his heart. And I wondered then if things could ever be the same. Then one night, I remembered his love for me. And down that dusty road, ahead I could see. It was the only time, it was the only time I ever saw him run. I was so ashamed, all alone and so far away. But now I know that he's been waiting for this day. I saw him run to me. It's a compelling song. If you haven't heard it, you might want to listen to it again. And it works for daughters too. But I think it's based on that reading uh, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 15. The parable of the lost or the prodigal son, reminds us that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding with steadfast love, steadfast love to those who love him. And Amos has been teaching us the same thing in a slightly different way, but the same thing really. And many who've read the parable of the prodigal son have understood it to reveal that God is willing to receive anyone who will repent, who will turn away from the way that they're walking, and return to God. The parable also reminds us that there are those who, like the older brother, will not celebrate God's mercy. Such folks are thirsty for justice and fairness, and they do not rejoice when the Lord forgives, because forgiveness is not just, and it is not fair. It's given to those who do not deserve it. However, buried within this parable is a truth that bears explanation, and it bears on the book of Amos. How did the prodigal son know that he was lost? And how did he know where to go in response to that lostness? And maybe we don't ask that question because it's fairly obvious in the parable, but it's still important. This son, of course, knew his father. He knew where his father's house was. He knew what his father's values were. And he knew that the life he was living did not compare to the life that he had left behind. How did he know those things? Because he had been brought up in his father's house. He had lived there. That's how he knew. But what of those who were never raised in that father's house? What if that prodigal had remained away and had had children who had been raised among the pigs and who had learned to eat the husks the pigs were given. It was all that they ever knew. How would they know the father? How would they know where his house was? How would they know what values he expected them to be raised with? How would they even come to know they were lost, let alone how to get home? 
That's the situation for most people. The Apostle Paul explains that situation well in his epistle to the Romans. This is Romans chapter 10, verses 8 through 15. Paul writes these words. But what does it say? He's quoting the scriptures. The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching, Paul and the other apostles, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart, the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's the dilemma, verse 14. How then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. To be saved, one has to put faith in Jesus, repent, and return to God. This is the order of salvation. Faith is first. The evidence of this repentance for Paul is public confession of Jesus as Lord and belief that God raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul explains that further by saying that true belief in Jesus will be considered righteousness by God. And if that belief is true, then it will be evidenced by a public proclamation of the gospel in word and in deed. This is Paul's longer description of what it means to be saved by grace through faith. However, there's a difficulty. How can a person call on a God in whom they do not believe? And how can someone believe in a God of whom they have not heard? And how can a person hear of a God unless someone tells them? And so the grace of God to the lost is most evident when he sends a messenger to speak his word to them. These messengers are what the scriptures mean by the prophets. The video we watched with the kids this morning was partly right, mostly right, partly wrong. The video said there are no more prophets. And in a way, that's true. There are no more sent by God whose words should be added to the scriptures. There are no more of them. God is no longer revealing new theology and new things to believe in. Our ancestors understood that the canon of scripture, the books that we now have in our Bible, must be closed. No more books should be added until Jesus returns. And so in this way, there are no more writing prophets. And that's true. However, the scriptures are also clear that God still sends people to warn those who have fallen asleep to wake up. God still sends warnings to his people in advance of his judgment that we might repent Paul's quotation of the prophet Isaiah remains as true today as it was in his day. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. How do I know that God still does that? Well, Paul speaks of the gift of prophecy given to the church through the Holy Spirit in the epistle of 1 Corinthians, chapters 11 through 14. Even more, and maybe this is more interesting, the book of Acts records the sending of a prophet 
to the early church, and the disciples heeded the warning given by God through him. His story is preserved in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 through 30. This is what the text says. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and indicated by the Spirit that there would definitely be a severe famine all over the world. This took place in the reign of Claudius. And to the extent that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And they did this, sending it with Barnabas and Saul, who is also called Paul, to the elders. So we, many of us who've studied the Apostle Paul are aware that just about everywhere he went, he was making collections for the churches in Judea, and especially in Jerusalem. Did we know that he was doing that because a prophet had been sent who said a famine was coming? That's why he was doing that. In essence, this discussion we're having today is at the heart of our exploration of Amos. So if you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to Amos chapter 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and again, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. This is Amos chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Hear this word which the Lord has spoken against you, sons of Israel, against the entire family which he brought up from the land of Egypt. You only have I known among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your wrongdoing. So that opening is very similar to what we heard last week. God expects more from those who know him than from those who do not. The Israelites certainly knew him, and that's the reason the type of judgment that was coming on them was coming. Verse 3, Do two people walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no device in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will the people not tremble? If a disaster occurs in a city, has the Lord not brought it about? Certainly the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret plan to his servants, the prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who can do anything but prophesy? Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt and say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria and see the great panic within her and the oppressions in her midst. But they do not know how to do what is right, declares the Lord, these who store up violence and devastation in their citadels. Therefore, this is what the Lord God says. An enemy, one surrounding the land, will take down your fortifications from you and your citadels will be looted. This is what the Lord says. Just as the shepherd snatches from the lion's mouth a couple of legs or a piece of an ear, so will the sons of Israel living in Samaria be snatched away with the corner of a bed and the cover of a couch. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of armies. For on the day that I punish Israel's offenses, I will also punish the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and will fall to the ground. I will also strike the winter house together with the summer house. The houses of ivory will also perish, and the great houses will come to an end, declares the Lord. Another aggressive text. All of them so far have been in Amos. There is hope. There's going to be a hopeful chapter, believe me. Why did God send Amos to the northern kingdom of Israel? As we discussed last week, Amos was sent to warn Israel before two catastrophic events happened in their history. The first is mentioned in the very first verse of Amos. It was an earthquake that occurred sometime between 790 and 760 BC. Amos was called by God two years before the earthquake. 
The second was the total destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel by the Assyrian Empire, which was going to happen in 722 BC, still another 40 or 50 years out from Amos' life. So we ask again, why did God send Amos to prophesy? And in asking that, we ask, why does God send prophets at all? God sent Amos to warn northern Israel that the season of God's mercy was coming to an end and that God had determined to send judgment upon them. That was the warning he was sent. He predicted the future, but only in the context of warning them. The first generation of northern Israelites, the first generation, hundreds of years before, who walked away from God, were like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable. They had known God, they had been raised in God's house, and they had demanded their inheritance and departed. That was when the kingdom split into two. Amos was not sent to them. That generation was long dead. Amos was sent to the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and you could go on and on, of those prodigal children. Amos was sent to a generation who had been raised in the world, who had known nothing, to use Jesus' parable again, who had known nothing other than pigs and pods. They still knew the right words. God, Yahweh, Jerusalem, David. They knew the words. But they had forgotten their meaning. Even if they were disgruntled with their lives, which they most certainly were, they wouldn't have known where to go. That reality is at the heart of Amos' description of Israel in his day. They had the covenant of Sinai, what we, which preserved for us in the first five books of our Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem. That was in southern Israel. And they had the priesthood, who operated out of the temple in Jerusalem, which was also in southern Israel. But Amos was sent to northern Israel, and northern Israelites did not go back to Jerusalem for their festivals. That's why he comments on the shrine in Bethel. They actually set up a shrine in Bethel, which is almost on the border of northern and southern Israel, and that's where they worshipped. They never went back to Jerusalem. They had their own shrine. They did not engage with the priesthood, and they had no access to the covenant of Sinai. All they knew is what they had been taught. Like the prodigal son, they were far from home. And this is why God sent them prophets. And Amos is not the only prophet sent to the northern kingdom of Israel. Some of the more familiar names in addition to Amos are Elijah, Elisha, Hosea, and Jonah. Why did God send these prophets? Well, Amos tells us why God sends prophets, then and now, and it's here in chapter 3 of Amos, verses 3 through 7. I'm going to read them again. Do two people walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from his den unless he has captured something? Does a bird fall into a trap on the ground when there is no device in it? Does a trap spring up from the earth when it captures nothing at all? If a trumpet is blown in a city, will the people not tremble? When I first lived in Chicago, uh, I had an interesting experience where a siren was going off. And I grew up in Massachusetts. And if a siren went off, you went to your book, which my mother had, to see what the blasts meant, right? They had a horn at the fire station. And they meant something. Town meeting today, so many blasts, you know? So I hear this horn going, I don't know what it is. So I went out on the balcony, and it was windy. And I called Jen, and she was at work, and I said, there's a horn going off. And Jen said, that's a tornado siren. Get in the bathroom. 
And I was out on the, I was like, it's really windy. I didn't know what it was. That's what he means. If a trumpet is blown in the city, if a tornado siren goes off, will the people not tremble? If a disaster occurs in, this, in a city, has the Lord not brought it about? Certainly, this is our memory verse, right? Certainly the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret plan to his servants, the prophets. God does not discipline his people in ignorance. God does not come into his child's room and throw him out of the house and say, you're out of here without any explanation and without any warning that it was going to occur. We learned last week that God is exceedingly patient. He had warned Israel through his written word and through his prophets for nearly 700 years before he allowed the Assyrian Empire to destroy Israel's northern kingdom. Prophets are sent before judgment comes. And they're sent for three primary reasons. First, God sends prophets to make his people aware of how they have rebelled against God. Most of the time, prophets are sent to people who are not aware that they are rebelling against God. They've been taught things that they've come to believe for generations, and they have assumed those things to be true, when in fact, their ancestors had misled them and the lies had become doctrines. That's mostly what the, who the prophets were sent to. And since prophets are generally sent to people who've been taught wrong things about God by people they loved and deeply trusted, the first responsibility of a prophet is confrontation and re-education. And for that reason, they are generally hated and most often killed by the people to whom they are sent. Second, prophets are sent to provide people an opportunity to repent and turn around. They are sent in advance of the judgment that the people might be corrected and turn back to God before the worst occurs. And third, prophets are sent to speak to future generations who might be more willing to listen than their parents and grandparents were. Some of you may recall the call of the prophet Jonah to the Assyrian city of Nineveh. God sent Jonah to Nineveh to warn them that their city would be destroyed in 40 days. The Ninevites repented of their sins in response to that message, and they turned away from the things that they had been doing text specifically tells us that they stopped doing violence. I don't know what they were doing, but they turned away from it. And God spared them in that judgment. Thanks be to God. The rest of the story, though, is not so happy. Afterwards, Nineveh returned to their sins, and then God sent another prophet to them, the prophet Nahum, to warn them again. And the second time, they did not listen, and they were destroyed. To this day, no one lives in that city. This is why God sends prophets. When God's people have forgotten him and his, and his way, when they have fallen asleep, when they've forgotten what God has taught them, when they've come to believe false things about God that have led them to live in rebellion against him, against him oftentimes the people are unaware they've done any of those things. They think they're walking with God. A person can think that they're doing God's will when in fact they have been deceived. You may recall that that is what happened to the Apostle Paul. That's part of his story. When he first heard of Jesus, he thought Jesus was a false prophet. This is covered in the book of Acts. So Paul began rounding up Christians for arrest, and in some cases, execution. 
And at that time, when Paul was doing those things, he thought he was doing the will of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who spoke to Moses, who spoke through the prophets. Paul thought he was working for that God, and he was zealous to persecute Christians who he thought were false teachers. But then on his way to the city of Damascus, Jesus encountered Paul on the road. Jesus himself, the guy who he thought they were making up stories about. There he was, in full living color, alive. And Jesus revealed to Paul that he thought he was doing God's will, but he was in fact at war with God. So what did Paul do? He repented. He turned from what he had been doing, and instead of persecuting the church, he took the gospel and spread it as far and wide in the Roman Empire as he could manage. He turned around. This is the primary purpose of a prophet, that God's people might become aware of their sin and turn and repent before judgment comes. Because during seasons of God's mercy, people can say whatever they want, believe whatever they want, and there are very little consequences for doing that. And so people believe that because God is silent, God is okay with everything that they've chosen to do. They've mistaken, as we said last week, his mercy for agreement. But when God actually comes, we find out what he actually thinks. And that's what Amos was warning them about. If the call to repentance fails, then the prophet becomes a speaker to the future. Oftentimes people don't believe a prophet when God sends him or her. Therefore, they do not repent. They don't believe they need to. And so God's judgment comes on them. And this is what happened to Amos. His contemporaries did not believe that God had sent him. We're going to get into that in a few weeks. They took him to be a false prophet. They did not believe they needed to repent. And God's judgment came. If this happens, then the only hope for repentance falls to the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of those who are disciplined. Therefore, the prophet explains what God has said he will do so that once God has done it, the next generation might learn from their parents' mistakes. And that's what happened in Israel. God only sends prophets when his intent is certain. God does not send prophets when he might do something. That's why most of Israelite history, there are no prophets. They come at very specific times. God only sends prophets when he will do something. In most cases, the only thing that God will allow to change his mind is repentance. That's what happened in Nineveh when Jonah went to them. However, God is not always willing to change his mind. There are occasions in the scriptures in which God determines not to allow even repentance to deter the judgment he has decreed. That's really the ministry of Isaiah. It's why it was so hard for him. It was also the ministry of Jeremiah. Isaiah, you'll notice if you read through his prophecy, everything is about the future because Isaiah had no hope of changing the minds of his contemporaries. He was writing to their children and grandchildren. So everything Isaiah says is about the future because he had no hope that the people to whom he was speaking would ever listen. In fact, in Isaiah 6, God told them they wouldn't listen to him. So Isaiah constantly speaks to the future. I said during the first week of our series that I believe that the upheaval of our time is what the scriptures would call the judgment of God. And if that's true, then in the decades and centuries prior to now, God would have sent prophets 
We wouldn't have called them that. We would have called them preachers, teachers, evangelists, proclaiming that the church had fallen asleep, that we were headed in the wrong direction, that we had forgotten the way of God and had begun to worship gods of our own design. Maybe we still called that God Yahweh or Jesus, but we no longer worship the God of Scripture. Those voices should have been here if this is judgment, because God always sends his prophets before judgment comes. So the question for each of us to ask when we're in a season like we are is do you remember such voices? Have you heard them in your lifetime? And when you heard them, did their message resonate with the scriptures? Did you feel the conviction of the Spirit when you heard them? Has God been warning us? I believe he has. As I said, I'm not very old, but I am the oldest I've ever been. (laughs) But in my lifetime, I've heard these voices from the time I was a child to today. My hope is that this generation, this one, will repent and that we won't leave it to our children and grandchildren to respond to the word of God. This is in part why I'm challenging our congregation again to read through the scriptures in the next 12 months. If God is speaking, we must have ears to hear. If God is moving, we must have eyes to see. May the Lord open our eyes and our ears that we might hear from God himself in our days. If we wish to see God run to us, what did the prodigal son do? God did not come to him in the pit with the pigs and the pods, did he? That's not the story Jesus told. He turned from that place and went home. Home is the scriptures. If we're to see God run to us, we must return home. And then the song is powerful because we know our God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he is quick to receive those who return. His forgiveness is already offered long before we turn from the pigs and the pots. Long before we turn from our wickedness and our rebellion, he is ample and ready to receive us. But he requires us to return so that we can receive what's already been offered before we return. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But even sinners must repent. May it be so that we will not leave it to our children and grandchildren to make the decision we should have had the courage to make. Might we learn from Nineveh, a nation that did not know God. And when Jonah came in and said, you're all wicked, they said, yup. If there's a God, he definitely is upset with us. We should take this seriously. They knew. They knew. They knew what they were doing was wrong. And the people of God know it too. Because God has not left us as orphans in the world. He's left the Holy Spirit with us. And if we quiet our hearts to listen, we know the way home. We know the way home.